dropped Reflecting on the water As the sun shuts her eyes Don't know why you'll uncover Watch the tide rolling With the moonlight Everything is silent Hey there, this is Missing Magnolias. We are a local Louisiana true crime podcast. And Michelle and I are super excited to have with us a guest today. We'd like to welcome to the show, Michael Reed. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Michael is the author of No Vacancy, Homeless Women in Paradise. He's also the co-founder of the Fund for Homeless Women, which began in 2012, You're also a Episcopalian priest. And from what I understand, you're enjoying your retirement. You've done the good work and you can now thankfully retire. Well, I don't know what that means really, because for the last several months, I have been looking around the Santa Fe area, trying to understand what the landscape is of nonprofits so that I can hopefully find a place for me to fit in and participate in making the community better. So I've been talking to grassroots organizations and other nonprofits to see how they use community volunteers and where I may be best placed. Michelle and I are so thankful. We've been so lucky because, as we said, we're a new kind of true crime podcast. So we really seek to find stories that matter and people that are doing things that really have an impact in our society. So you must have raised an eyebrow when you got our email, a true crime podcast, seeking to ask you about your work and your experience with the homeless. I was really surprised because this book came out about five years ago, and I thought it was just collecting dust. I was really shocked that you found it and that you actually read it and read it thoughtfully and, and, and had reactions to it. So all of that was very rewarding. We're in Louisiana, and I was actually in L.A. this summer, and I walked into this lovely bookstore in Venice where I found your book. It was almost a little bit meta because what's happening in L.A. and other cities all across our country, you have these upscale restaurants and right next to it are these encampments. And it's sad and it's tragic. Michelle has talked frequently as well as in her work and in her classes about what's known as the missing missing. I think I was really surprised because, yes, there is a lot of homeless and yes, it seems to be growing. And yes, there are a lot more people now talking about it. But because of all that, there's a lot of noise. So I think I was surprised that my little book that I thought was trite was a little tiny voice, I guess, in the chorus of voices that you were able to find it. Before I interrupt Michelle, I just want to read a passage from Michael's book. The experts all agreed that the most vulnerable and undeserved in our communities were homeless women, particularly older women and those without dependent children mental illness, domestic violence, or substance abuse. This is an important fact worth repeating. I learned that for women like these, the possibility of a bed for the night was becoming more impossible to find. And if you are a woman veteran, you are four times more likely to become homeless than your male counterpart. I hope people after listening to this will go out and buy this book because it's so timely. So I think what we want to spotlight in this conversation is really just the humanness of this experience and the ways in which we tend to marginalize people who are living in these situations. 
I first started to investigate this topic in when I was teaching one of my first classes at the college level on serial offenders. When we talked about this notion of what Quinette referred to as the missing missing, these groups of people that are being preyed upon that don't even end up in our databases because there's no infrastructure to support these individuals. And we know that There are people who are actively seeking out victims who are living on the fringes of society. And they seek them out, not just because of the easy access, but because of the unwillingness of our society to sort of humanize these individuals. That shapes how much we as average citizens care about them when they go missing and probably shapes how much time, effort, and support their cases receive from law enforcement, from the media, from the community. My experience with homeless persons is tangential through research that I do. People experiencing homelessness or people living transient lifestyles. We are so excited to talk to somebody who has much more experience being the feet on the ground out there not only just bringing awareness, but taking active steps to try and provide much needed services. That's just my little bit of an overview on how that relates to crime. They're victims. They're being preyed upon at higher rates than the average population. I think I'd like to also say that my feet are not on the ground anymore. I am retired from that. I have moved to a different city. So my perspective is more historic than contemporary, although five years is not that long ago, but still, I am not working in that field right now. So can we backpedal for a minute and just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with this? Well, my background is kind of long and meandering. So what I think helped to shape who I am has to do with the fact that my parents are immigrants to this country from Jamaica, West Indies. I am the first uh, born in America, the first to go to college. So I have personally been an explorer, discovering new things, looking out. I really had not much to look back on. So everything that I was experiencing was ahead of me. I have a doctorate degree from a university in Philadelphia, and I spent all of my time as an employed person in the nonprofit world. Everything that I've done thus far has been in the human services arena. I then became an Episcopal priest at the end. The last job I had was working for the church. While I was working in a parish in Pacific Grove on the Monterey Peninsula, which is a very affluent community, I received a letter from a woman whom I had never met before, who told me that she had been homeless. In her letter, she said that she was shocked that there were so many other women like her sleeping in their cars, on the beach, in hallways, and that they were being victimized. As Michelle talked about earlier, they were being raped. They were having their belongings, what belongings they had. They were being stolen. They were being harassed. Harassed not only by other homeless people, but harassed by people who lived in those communities, harassed by the police, where there were ordinances that prohibited their existence in those spaces, and that she felt invisible. And it was the word invisible that just sort of grabbed me by the neck. And it was so interesting because I 
was a parish priest. I mean, I had people coming to me every day for food, for things. And even for me, they were invisible. I didn't really know that the problem was as extensive as it was. But because she used the word invisible, I too felt invisible. So it was that immediate connection, uh, their invisibility, my feeling of invisibility. And because I am drawn to the service industry, it caused me to uh, investigate this further. That's kind of how it all happened. One of the, the most striking things about your book is it seeks to answer who are these women it goes against what we're taught to believe homelessness looks like. Can you talk a, a little bit about some of the, the women that you encountered? I'm so glad that that came out to you because that was what I intended to communicate. It perhaps is the biggest piece of knowledge that I received having gone through that process because I think for the majority of us who are not familiar with homeless people, all we have to go by is what we see on the street. And consequently, all of our assumptions kick in, especially in America, our assumption is that, in speaking very broadly, our assumption may be that these individuals made the wrong choices, didn't want to work hard, are hanging out on the beach because they want to be irresponsible, that they're drug addicts. What I discovered is quite the opposite. First and foremost, homeless women are a representation of all of us. They're not one kind of person. They have individual stories. That was what I really hoped to communicate in the book, because I think that's one of the most important pieces of information when attempting to meet their needs. They're not they, they're not other, they're not over there. They represent our sisters, our mothers, our cousins, our friends. They are us. We could be in that situation as well. Easily, very easily. I'm reminded in what you just said about a lot of the research that I do on runaway kiddos. We see that oftentimes they come from backgrounds of abuse and neglect. The majority of kids who run away from home are running from abuse, neglect, and family dysfunction. But the belief system by the average person is that they're incorrigible. They just don't listen to mom and dad. They're just unruly. And so they're treated in sort of a dismissive way by society. They're like, a problem. We don't really want to think about it too much and sort of ignore it. And what happens to these kids? There are people preying on a marginalized group. And again, we're seeing the same thing here. It's like we as a society ignore them and don't treat them as like full humans. And so we continue to allow whoever these people are and whatever contacts to come in and take advantage of them in the same way that we see with our kiddos. It's just the adult version of it, it feels like. Because of where I lived on the Monterey Peninsula, the kind of women that I met by and large were women who, first of all, lived in that community. There's a thought that, okay, they're coming to Monterey because they want to hang out on the beach or they want to go to the aquarium or some stupid crap like that. What we did, though, we partnered with an institution on the peninsula to establish a data collection protocol. That would be in the curriculum of the institution so that we could every year have a real data-driven read on who these women are, how they got there, 
what their needs are, are their needs being met? What could we do as a community to make their lives different? And I love that you said that they represent all of us. And there's so many stories like this where they could be working still. They could be clocking into their job at Olive Garden and then their coworkers don't know that they're homeless and they go back and live out under the underpass. They're just so wrapped in medical bills that they can't care for sick family members. And so that's the progression. It's horrible. And I I don't know if you're aware, I, I read something where there was a study that financial duress can actually drop your IQ by 13 points. It's a problem that concerns all of us and it's deeply complex. All of your points are very well taken because all of those situations did truly exist. And I did meet women who were, as you pointed out, working in restaurants and sleeping in their cars, dying in a tent, having their ID discovered in the tent, leading to her employer who said, yeah, she's a waitress here. She works for me. That was a shock. Women who did not go into homelessness with a mental disorder, ultimately, after a couple of weeks or months, the stress will totally result in depression, anxiety, all of those conditions that can ultimately become addiction, sex trafficking. It's a downward spiral. It's one situation after another that takes you further and further and further away from what we call a normal existence. That's why it was so important for us to try to engage with these women as soon as we could before they became chronically homeless. Because once you're a chronically homeless individual and that becomes your worldview, it becomes even more difficult to get you out of that. That is really interesting. And I love knowing this. I'm going to be repeating that to people. I mean, of course, early intervention is best, but like, here's a prime example of there's a critical window. It sounds like. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about the youth. We established a scholarship program for homeless individuals who were enrolled in college because we wanted to provide them with financial support so that they could finish their education, hoping that a college education may put them in a different place, give them a leg up. The applications for these scholarships are just growing. I believe that. I've had students who have experienced homelessness in the middle of the semester and when we think about that critical time, when you're of that age and you're sort of learning about the world, you're growing your own opinions. It's maybe in contrast to your parents and or you may have moved in with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It's all this change going on. And it's a critical time for these young adults find themselves in a situation where they're experiencing homelessness and they have to like choose between their education and a job and they're sleeping in the car on campus. I made some phone calls for this student. I was like, okay, what do we do? What do we have? And everyone was like, uh, we don't know what to do. No one's asked that before. People aren't really thinking about safe places to land. I can't imagine the anxiety and fear as a woman because you're raised all your life being told all of these things you have to do to keep yourself safe. You are never alone. You're aware of your surroundings. You're not out at night. All of these things that you're supposed to do that are going to magically keep you safe. They can't do any of those things because of the context they're in. So that is just extremely anxiety provoking. It must be frustrating from your vantage point. 
everyone now is chiming in, what's the best solution? And there's probably no short answer to that. I know that in your book, you encountered a lot of pushback with some of the solutions that local governments were lobbying for. And I know that we're seeing that with LA and other cities in California where residents are adamantly opposed to shelters. Can you explain a little bit of your experience to that effect? I think one of the most important things for us to realize is that in no shape or form are we going to eliminate homelessness. There is no magic wand. There is no one solution for this issue. What we discovered is the best thing to do is to, as I said earlier, realize that these women are not one person. They have different stories. They have different needs. So what we did was we looked at them, listened to all of their stories, and determined where they were and asked them what they needed and provided support in the area that they articulated uh, would best help them. For women who were the most poor, the most in need, we developed a program that would pick them up wherever they were, put them in a safe space. Those women needed immediate harm reduction so that they would not be in the elements, be hungry, be attacked. My point is there isn't one way for any of us. It becomes incumbent upon us to really find out what these women need woman by woman, person by person, and provide them with the level of care that they need to help move them in a new direction. You can't put a person in a hotel room or in a house and say, okay, here's your key. It doesn't work that way. Although that is what they want, they want that safety, they want that security, but there may have been other issues that have been left undealt with, unaddressed, that will come back and cause them to be on the street once again. Some things that I want to highlight. I love that you talk about purpose-driven research. I was having this conversation about purpose-driven research last night, sitting in this exact seat with my feminist criminology graduate level class. And it was just the intro chapters through some books that we were reading. And that stood out to all of us. We all want to do work that matters. A lot of the students in that classroom want to be people who are out in the community being helpers, being service providers. And their question was sort of like, this purpose of research thing sounds amazing. Like, how do we all do it? So I really like the example that you gave in part because y'all went and asked, what's the problem? Trying to understand the problem from people experiencing it, which I think is the most important thing that we often neglect to do. While my purpose-driven data collection relationship with the institution was awesome and continues because they are asking women who are alive and experiencing these situations about their lives, the other end of that was looking at the dead women. That's something that I hadn't even intended to even go to because there's so many living people to talk to that that was all consuming in and of itself. But when I began to look at the dead women, that opened up a whole other world for me. Because where do those women end up? 
what happens to them? Like all of us, they have to pass away. But if they're living in a tent or sleeping in their car, what happens to them? Who finds them? Where do their bodies go? What about the questions? Who answers those questions? Who cares? I was appalled to read these little snippets in the back page. Woman found on the street in Carmel. What? (laughs) You found a woman on the street in Carmel? Who is that woman? Why was she there? Woman found in her car. Body found in a tent. And these are just little things. But these are human beings. And so I thought, what the hell? How can this happen? (laughs) But those are the kinds of things that just startle me. Because those are human beings. Those are people like you and me. We should really care about that. So what I began to do is call the police department, go to the coroner's office, read these reports. It's just exhausting because I don't know if it's ever going to really change. But it was important for me to, to glean that information and to do my best to the extent that was possible in that book to highlight these lives, to let the reader know that, yes, these women are alive and they die and they've been dying and they continue to die. Once a woman is labeled transient, Once a woman doesn't have a physical address that is reputable and a history that one can honor, she becomes, if she was invisible then, she's really invisible now. She doesn't exist. She is a non-entity. So those individuals that you talk about in the university who's interested in data-driven research I encourage them to not only look at the living homeless, but look at the dead ones and try to build those stories up and back. I love that you said that. Anybody living on the fringes of society is largely ignored. And I mean, this is terrible, but if I'm police and I'm underpaid and underfunded and overworked and all of that, and I have a certain amount of time that's allotted to me to investigate these unidentified remains, right? I might not spend as much time on somebody who seems to be transient. It's going to be harder. The family's not going to come knocking at my door. It sort of seems like you can put these cases on the back burner because we've created a system that allows it. I remember a story, a situation where working as a priest in the parish, one morning I came to work and there was a young woman sitting on the steps who said that she had been raped the night before. She was homeless, and while she was sleeping at the church outside, because that was where she felt safe, she claimed someone raped her. So what do you do? Call the police. What happens? They take her to a hospital to do a rape kit. Rape kits, we found out, are not being looked at. So she was examined and the rape kit gets put on a shelf with hundreds of other rape kits. So the ultimate diagnosis or assessment never really happened, but because it was a critical situation, there were a lot of focus placed on this because I was looking at this issue. This was at a church in an affluent community 
the news media arrived, the police officers were all there. So it became a critical issue. And my point, though, is because of that attention in that particular situation, she became a victim. Even though the rape kit hadn't yet been looked at, because she was a victim, she qualified for a bed in a program that otherwise had no bed for her before. So you had to be victimized before you qualified for a bed in a shelter. That's a positive scenario, honestly, I would say, because we're lucky the police investigated that because we have lots of instances where in which we apprehend offenders later on come to find out, oh, this person was transient or homeless or drug addict or whatever. They never investigated that. She reported it 10 years ago. No one even looked into it. No one collected evidence. So what's sad is like that is a positive scenario. I also love that your book, you mentioned that you helped start a photography exhibition to shine light on these women and these stories. That ability to be seen and recognized by our community can be so instrumental. Well, you know, the Monterey Peninsula is so sort of art focused. There's a lot of artistic stuff going on there. What we decided to do initially was we wanted to show people that these women do exist because Every time we would anecdotally say, we're discovering that there's a number of homeless women who live on the Monterey Peninsula, the response would typically be, really? They do? I don't see these women. So what we decided to do was try to, with the permission of these ladies, we had photographers go to where they were and take their images, take their pictures, and have them, again, with their permission, talk about their stories. This was an exhibit that we had at a major gallery in Carmel, California, and it was tremendously successful. This was the first effort on our part to educate the community that these women existed and they are our neighbors. They are living right next to us. They are us. What would you tell to people who want to grow up and be you one day? What would you tell them to do? How do they get involved? They get involved. Look around their community and see who else is doing this work and partner up with folk. There's so many times I go into a community and see like hundreds and hundreds of nonprofit organizations. And I wonder why are we all working in silos? Isn't there a way to collaborate? Think of collaboration more, I would say to folk. Look and see who's doing the work that resonates with you and see if there's a place within it for your skills. Can you participate in their effort? And if there's nothing going on that resonates with you, then try to find a way in. Try to find a way to meet those needs. There's always something you can do if you really care. My friends would say, just do one thing and do it well, and do one thing at a time. And each success is a major accomplishment. I encourage people to think about that. You're not going to solve homelessness, for example, but if you can help one person find her way, you have really done a great service. That reminds me just today, I saw 
I don't know how accurate this is, a Mother Teresa quote that said, if you can't feed 100 people, feed one. There you go. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank and you. Please go buy Michael's book. It is on Amazon. It's No Vacancy, Homeless Woman in Paradise by Michael Reed. <laughs>